Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. And we're into extra time. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only program brought to you by RNZ Sport. I'm Matt Chatterton. We start this week's show with the resignation of All Whites coach Anthony Hudson. Hudson stepping down following last week's failed World Cup qualifying attempt against Peru. The 36-year-old Englishman was in charge of the team for three years, leading them to an Oceania Nations Cup title and the Confederations Cup in Russia earlier this year. RNZ's football reporter Clay Wilson told me Hudson's resignation came as no real surprise. I think most of us saw this coming, who've been following it for a while. Uh, obviously, Hudson's contract was until the end of this World Cup cycle. This World Cup cycle's now over. Mm. Um, it's been a lot in the media about the interest from overseas clubs, the UK and the US. Um, most recently with MLS club uh, Colorado. So it looks like that's potentially where he's going. Um, so obviously he was weighing weighing those options up. Uh, the team hasn't qualified, his contract is up, mm. and he's decided to move on, uh, which isn't a huge surprise because he's probably going somewhere where, A, he's going to be paid a bit more, yeah. given, I guess you could say, he's done reasonably well in the All Whites job, um, but also he's going to get a lot more games. I think mm. that's a big factor. Uh, it's no secret that he was not exactly happy about the amount of games the All Whites play. It's been not too bad in the last 18 months as the qualifying mm. campaign's kicked up, but... There's not many games coming up, though, is there, for the All-Whites? Because uh, next year, obviously, there's the, the World Cup, and the All-Whites aren't going to be part of that. So they wouldn't. he would have got, what, two or three more games probably over the next year or so anyway? Well, we don't even know. There's actually not, even, not any All-Whites games scheduled at all until the first game of the next World Cup qualifying campaign. And, of course, Oceania's got the shortest qualifying campaign out of any of the six confederations. So uh, it could have been perhaps three or four games next year maybe um, I know New Zealand football was saying that other countries were interested in playing games and they were in talks whatever that particularly means to to play games but um, you know the history of the All Whites especially in the year or two after World Cup cycles playing games is, is well the amount of games they play anyway is not a lot and there's a, a very good chance that New Zealand football is not going to have as much money to spend on the All Whites they got a lot of money obviously out of Going to the World Cup in 2010, even in the last cycle, um, even though they lost to Mexico, they got about five or six million dollars in TV rights for the for the host league of the intercontinental playoffs. So they haven't got around that. Uh, they haven't got that amount this time, by the looks of it, and not even close. So financially as well, there might not be the money to pump into all whites games, which are notoriously expensive because mm. of our geographic location in the world. Yesterday, Andy Martin did say that they should not necessarily break even, but be somewhat financially sustainable from what the, what has happened this year, but I guess we'll have to wait and see when those details do come out. Uh, you mentioned earlier that Hudson had a somewhat successful reign, three years with the All Whites. Do you think they improved under Hudson in, during his tenure? 
I think this one will be debated amongst the football community in New Zealand. Some people will say yes, some say no. I think it's somewhere about in the middle. Uh, probably more than anything, it's off-field where the All-Whites have, have made some strides. You know, Hudson came in and made demands about the professional levels of not only the All-Whites, but the you know, under-23, under-17 players, the younger players of this country. Um, so you know, the the All-Whites themselves, the he demanded you know proper sports scientists, um, proper video analysts, those sorts of things. And there's no doubt when you talk to the players and the people around the camp that those things have improved within the All-Whites a lot. Uh, Results-wise, um, they might tell you, and Andy Martin was full of praise for the results the All-Whites have had. Uh, you, when you look back historically, perhaps maybe a little bit better, but th- there really hasn't been that much improvement result-wise. And in terms of the style they play, Hudson came in talking about playing this positive style of football. Um, that hasn't really always happened, and not always his fault. He hasn't always had the cattle to do it. Mm. Injuries and unavailabilities um, have made it difficult. Um, but we, he had a, has had players the likes of Ryan Thomas, uh, Marco Rojas, these types of guys, who New Zealand football hasn't produced a lot of these style of players, the, the, the creative um, players with the ability to hold the ball and, and play in the midfield and create uh, attack. Um, so perhaps hasn't quite utilised that as maybe some people would have liked, but I think he's probably, you know, in his defence, just done what he what he could with the players he had at the time. Um, you know, New Zealand football has always been about that physical style, lump it forward, play set piece. Um, and Chris Wood, as a, as a front man, has, has been a great target for that. Um, but, yeah, I think perhaps you would say somewhere around a B would be a decent grade for him. The team has probably made small strides, I think, but, uh, you know, and you only have to look at the result against Peru, but, um, you know, there would definitely be people in the football community that might argue they thought the team could perhaps have done a, a little bit better, perhaps some of the... Maybe not qualified for the World Cup, but some of the results in between that, mm. maybe. Well, I mean, you think about it like this is professional sport. They're a result-based business, aren't they? And essentially, they're not going to the World Cup. So, hey, that's no big deal, I guess. Oh, well, to some people it is, but we'll <laughs> leave that to them. Um, who do you think will be the next cab off the rank to replace Hudson uh, at the All Whites? Yeah, I guess that's the uh, the golden question at this point. I don't think we're going to find out in a hurry. Uh, I think I read somewhere that it was eight or nine months both times the All-Whites last uh, had to find a replacement coach before. Andy Martin did say, though, that he was going to make sure that it was quicker this time around, but, I mean, we we all saw... Quicker by one day. Yeah, 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 yeah. who knows, who knows. We won't know. (laughs) Um, But I suppose with no game scheduled, there isn't a huge rush, um, and they want to find the right person. And and there's various arguments on this... uh, you know, do you go for another overseas-based coach, someone like Hudson, who obviously came here ambitious to to go on and achieve other things in his career? It was really a stepping stone. If we'd made the World Cup, maybe he stays on, um, maybe even not not then. Uh, but yeah, locally there's not a huge amount around. Um, I know people have talked about Danny Hay, yeah, really nice guy, great up-and-coming coach. Has appeared pretty lukewarm on it at this stage. Not to say he wouldn't be interested when eventually they do. Um, announce it. Um, I know there's Raymond uh, Drabuliech from Auckland City. People talk about him, but of course he m- missed out on the Phoenix job. Mm-hmm. So whether he would get an All Whites job uh, outside of that, um, and would he want to go back to playing two or three games a year though, compared to what he's doing with Auckland City? Well, that's you're trying to find a coach that that's prepared to accept that. Um, and I I don't know if New Zealand football are going to try and make the argument the All Whites are going to get more games, but certainly they're going to need to try and push that because it's not appealing to. 
football coaches, it's a coach of any kind to be coming into a team where the team's not playing games. That's what as sports people, coaches, players alike. Mm. You know, that's what you you're involved for because you it's the it's the game side of it. You know, no one's involved for the trainings and the organisations and you know the travelling. People aren't in it for that. So um, yeah, I, I, I suspect it'll be someone from overseas. Given it, looking at what's available, I, I mean, Danny Hayes not out of the question, um, but I think they'll probably go overseas again. They need someone. Perhaps uh, you know from a, maybe a different realm. The All Whites have, have in New Zealand football traditionally had a lot of English influence. Mm. Um, you only have to look at Hudson and his team, um, Darren Baisley, Alex Armstrong. These guys, all English. Mm. Um, so yeah, it would be nice to see something a bit different. Um, perhaps someone that is going to promote that that sort of uh, more attacking, uh, adventurous style where they're going to hold the ball a bit more and be a bit more creative. Um, but it's it's always going to be a battle with the all-whites. It's just the, the nature of the beast. And I guess, you know, in a few years' time and maybe a decade, we're going to get automatic World Cup entry and, mm. and that sort of thing. I don't know if that creates more problems or, or makes it uh, better necessarily, but um, I guess just watch the space. It won't be before the end of the year, I will suspe- suspect, but maybe sort of two or three months into next year we might have some better idea of who the candidates are and, and who might might do the job. But it, it's certainly going to be interesting to see who eventually wins the race. Thank you very much, Clay Wilson. Rugby League has the chance to usurp Rugby Union as the leading sport of the Pacific if it takes advantage of the impact of Tonga, Fiji and Samoa at the League World Cup. Damon Salisa is the Associate Professor of Pacific Studies at Auckland University and he says the rise of the Pacific at the tournament on the back of leading players like Jason Taumalolo opting to play for the countries of heritage rather than the likes of New Zealand and Australia has provided something that cannot be overlooked. Many of the people I'm around and myself included have been really moved by the decision you know, particularly the players who would have made you know, the, the front line of both Australia and New Zealand, their decision to play for their ancestral Pacific homeland has been really moving. They've put their connection to their homeland above the money they could have made and even perhaps their chance at winning a World Cup. And so it's been, it's been quite a, a stunning and moving experience for many Pacific people. And I think it's really brought life to the Rugby League World Cup. What do you think has prompted some of those players to do that, particularly the ones, as you mentioned, that, that would otherwise have been first choice in some of the so-called big nations? You know, I think part of it is understanding the, the place of a team, even the Rugby League World Cup teams in the Pacific, which are not nearly as celebrated as the Rugby Union teams. Um, they occupy this really special place in nations like Samoa, Tonga, where as many Samoans and Tongans live outside Samoa and Tonga as within it. So the, the rugby and the um, league teams offer an opportunity for people to express their connection with their homeland. They sort of sit as a status symbol of what it is to be Tongan or Samoan. And so they're a real focal point. And for, for players like Jason Tomalolo, who was born and raised in South Auckland before he moved to Queensland, or Andrew Fafita, who's both Tongan and Indigenous Australian, yeah, it's their chance to really connect with being Tongan. And so I, I suspect, even though that they're obviously profoundly in a, in a connected to their Tonganness, they've probably never felt as Tongan as they did 
the last two Saturday nights, when, when just the whole nation has embraced them and celebrated their achievement and what they and their talent. Does it say, because as you mentioned there, that Jason Tomololo was born and raised in South Auckland, that his connectedness to New Zealand is not... He obviously feels... Does he feel a greater connection to Tonga, or does he feel a greater connection to New Zealand, or it's both, or or, or what, what might it be? Well, it's obvious that most Pacific New Zealanders can feel connected both to New Zealand and to their Pacific homeland. And I think... Yeah, what we see is that we have an ability for people to choose, and New Zealand and Australia were fine with giving league players the right to choose, but they did it on the assumption that, given the choice, they would choose Australia and New Zealand. And what they've discovered is that they might not, and they don't like it. You know, they, they Australia and New Zealand both sort of conceived of the Pacific nations, just as they do in rugby union. They conceive of them as a kind of B team, for Australia and New Zealand. And then when you get called up to the A-team, in their mind, the All Blacks or the Wallabies or the Kiwis or the Kangaroos, you shouldn't say no. And what we've seen is that people will say no, that there are other things they value. Um, And I think, you know, we're going to see more players perhaps contemplate this because of just how powerful this has turned out to be for, you know, for tens of thousands of Tongans. And I suspect there's a bunch of Samoans players who... If this role, next time the Rugby League World Cup run, rolls around, if they haven't changed the eligibility rules, they might think about making similar decisions as well. And it will be interesting to see if the players, if the, the administrators have the courage to leave the rules as they are. I suspect they won't. I think they're going to get pressure on them to make it harder for players to make the decision that Tom Law and Fafita have made. Well, it's done a wonderful thing for rugby league. So, in a sense, they'd be cutting off their nose to spite their face, wouldn't they? Because what it's done to, to develop the or put the, the uh, promote the game and, and take it to a to a wider wider audience is something yeah, that rugby league definitely needs. I think absolutely. And one of the things that's distressed many of us who love sport and love the Pacific is the way that rugby unions have treated the Pacific nations. They lock them out of the rugby championship. They lock them out of the Super 15. They do very poor revenue sharing. They treat the Pacific Nations as a B team. And this is an opportunity for Rugby League, really, to muscle in and say, look, we're going to treat you better than Rugby Union. We're going to share revenue. We're going to make you a part of the big things. There's real opportunities here for League to to improve its kind of um, position in the Southern Hemisphere, at least, by truly embracing and truly being inclusive of the Pacific Nation. Damon Salisa, the Associate Professor of Pacific Studies at Auckland University, talking to RNZ Sports Editor Stephen Hewson. The former America's Cup skipper Chris Dixon says the decision to opt for foiling monohulls for the next America's Cup will make the event more relevant to regular sailors. America's Cup holders Team New Zealand have announced the design for the 2021 event will be AC-75 foiling monohulls rather than the catamarans of the past few events. Team New Zealand design coordinator Dan Bernasconi says feedback from other syndicates recommended a return to monohulls and Dixon told sports editor Stephen Hewson it's a move he agrees with. They look absolutely incredible. 
after the last America's Cup falling multi-hulls, I'm sure we all thought that would be a hard act to follow, but it seems to me that what they've come up with is a fantastic boat, incredibly innovative, and it's going to be exciting racing. Was there any word in the yachting fraternity that this was what was on the on the table? There was, and the uh, the whispers started coming out a, a couple of months ago, or you know, six weeks ago probably. And uh, but I, I heard the whispers. I I saw some early sketches, and what they've come up with uh, has impressed me beyond what the rumours I'd heard. So I think they've done incredible work to to come up with what they have, and I think it's going to encourage a lot of teams to come. So a boat like this doesn't exist at the moment? Nothing like this exists on that scale. We have the little uh, three-metre-long single-handed foiling moths, of which Peter Burling has been world champion in the past, and this is basically a a big boat version of that. And previously, uh, I've always understood, well, recently understood, that we didn't possess the technology to make big boat, big monohulls foil, but uh, Team New Zealand designers have, uh, have obviously uh, gone a step further, and this is a first for this planet, foiling monohulls on a large scale. They're going to be very impressive. What is it that excites you the most about them? What excites me is the fact that 99% of the, of the boats in the world are monohulls, of sailing yachts, of cruising yachts, of pleasure yachts, monohulls are the practical boats out there they always have been um, and that's what most of the world knows and to have the amount of innovation they've got in a monohull just says to the rest of the world that hey this is something you know, the whole world knows monohulls, every yacht club, every sailor in the world knows monohulls and it will encourage teams to compete and if t- more the, the more teams come, the better the event and the better that is for everyone Chris, do you think we're going to see a return to more, more tacking duels, more starting manoeuvres uh, t- type of thing, rather than maybe dr- flat-out drag racing? We saw the uh, starting manoeuvres start to creep into the last cup, even though they were very complicated multi-hulls. But the America's Cup is match racing. That's two boats in the race. All you've got to do is beat the other boat. And staying between your opposition and the finish line is the name of the game. And monohulls that are manoeuvrable will lend themselves more to that boat on, those boat-on-boat tactics. So I think they're, uh, they're going to be an exciting boat to watch. They're going to be an exciting boat to develop. They're going to be a challenge for the teams. And if they've got the, the crew work, the Jenicas going up and down, the grinding comes back, and match racing back on top as well, it all adds up to being an exciting event to follow. And if it's exciting to follow, it means it's exciting to compete. More teams, better media, good television coverage, it just makes for a far better event. Former Team New Zealand skipper Chris Dixon talking to Stephen Hewson. New Zealand's Commonwealth Games team nearly tripled in size this week with the addition of its first para-athletes, but there's one glaring omission. Rio silver medalist Holly Robinson is the sole para-athlete competing in track and field at the Games, while seven para-lawn bowlers have also been named. However, champion sprinter Liam Malone won't be heading to the Gold Coast. Malone in front, Bera's a danger, Malone, Bera dives at him! Oh, it's tight, tight Paralympic record, 46-21, it might be Malone, but it's a photo finish. 
Malone throws himself down after the line. He's thrown everything into it. He's done the double, I'd suggest. The 200-400. What a race. Para sprinter Liam Malone was one of New Zealand's standout performers at the Paralympics in Rio, winning two golds and a silver. However, he won't be at the Commonwealth Games next year because the host nation, Australia, gets to cherry-pick which events are integrated into the main programme and his aren't among them. That means there'll only be one New Zealander competing in track and field events, Hokitika javelin thrower Holly Robinson. Robinson won silver at Rio last year and finished second again at the World Championships in London earlier this year and believes she's on schedule to go one better on the Gold Coast next April. Competing alongside able-bodied athletes will be a first for Robinson and she hopes it's a sign of things to come. Whether time will allow that in terms of having a full calendar of para-athletes and able-bodied athletes, I don't think there's time in a certain calendar for that. But more and more integration within our sports nationally, internationally, is always going to be a really good thing. Also named today was the New Zealand Para Bowls team. 2014 Glasgow Games silver medalist Barry Winks, Mark Noble and Bruce Wakefield will compete in the Open Triples event, while David Stallard and Sue Curran and their directors, Peter Blick and Anne Muir, will contest the mixed pair. David and Sue finished fourth in Glasgow and won silver at this year's World Championships and are set on finishing in the top three in Australia next year. David is both blind and deaf, making his achievements all the more impressive, though he wouldn't admit it himself. First of all, you've got to have a good director. <laughs> is he good? He's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> he's been with me for five years. He knows very, very good. The critical thing is to have the mat down. It must be square. And you've got to make sure my feet is right. What he does, he calls out the distance where the jack is, and I play my bowl. Then he relates back to me where my bowl's finished. Then I make my correction from there. So, um, as I said, a director is really, really critical. As part of today's announcement, David and the rest of the Para Lawn Bowls team held a clinic with a group of children hoping to be the next Para Stars of New Zealand. 13-year-old Matakorama Waipori, who suffers from cerebral palsy, proves she's a natural at the sport, and for good reason. It's pretty enjoyable and kids should try and participate and not be scared of it. They don't have to be shy or anything. Just try and be confident and give it a go. I hear, I hear you've got quite a bit of uh, family history with bowls. Yes, my dad um, used to play um, bowls and in RSA at Papakura. I'm like, oh, I, didn't, I didn't know that about my dad. I was like, I was like, wow, okay, I, I will follow my dad's footsteps. Well, it seems as though you've got a few of his genes because you're not a bad yes. bowler, are you? Yes, because I like playing two-ball bowling sometimes, but not always because I, I haven't played it for a long time, two-ball bowling, but I think I really like this. Is, is this something you uh, could quite possibly see yourself competing at the Paralympics one day? Yes, yes, very much so. It appears the future of New Zealand Paralympics is in good hands. Finally, a year on from a damning independent report on the state of women's cricket, the author of the report believes the sport has undergone a transformation. Last year, New Zealand Cricket released the Women and Cricket Report by management consultant Sarah Beeman, which castigated the sports administration. It found over 90% of cricket clubs didn't have female-only teams, while over 60% of clubs didn't offer cricket for girls. 
Beeman's report said priority needed to be given to increasing the number of women on cricket boards and she says that number has now increased from 11 to 35. She spoke to sports editor Stephen Hewson about the transformation the sport is undergoing. Cricket as a whole has actually responded incredibly well. Um, I've been involved particularly, they pulled me in to do a project to drive the, the women in governance space because it was quite clear if you can actually change the diversity around the decision-making table that that's a real key to making change. And they've, they've been going great guns. And it's, you know, I mean, New Zealand cricket's obviously driving it, but it's actually the cricket family. It can't just, it can't be forced on on associations. Um, they've they've shifted from 11 females in governance at the national major association and district association level. That's in total um, to 35. So 35 women are now involved at those decision-making tables. So, I mean, that's a significant shift in, in really a kind of a year to 18-month period. The governance was one of the, the particular areas. Are there areas that you, you've seen change or noticed change in? I do certainly know they've changed the structure of how high performance is delivered within New Zealand cricket. So that's now all black ferns and white... Sorry, black cats and white ferns are, are all um, under one high-performance structure, which was a shift because the white ferns was kind of out to the side previously. So that gives the players access to a lot of the resources and um, the same sort of resources as the Black Cats are getting from a female perspective. Um, in terms of the participation, there, there was a fund put up in the first year, and again, there's another one that um, is available this season, from my understanding, and that was to, to allow associations that were interested in trying new initiatives to engage females to put their hand up for that. And um, as, a, as a result of that, we've seen the, the participation rates have grown 12%. For females playing the game, uh, mostly in the you know the, the junior and youth space, which is what they were targeting in the first instance. Uh, I mean, given, given your experience with other organisations, the, the speed, or on the face of it, that that would seem the speed of that change would, would seem reasonably remarkable. Well, I, I think so. To be honest, like I mean, driving the females and governance side of things, I didn't expect that sort of shift. To be honest, and I thought that it would be a lot harder. Um, I mean, you know, there's obviously associations out there that are still, everyone's on the journey. But, you know, to, to essentially have had sort of one female, Sally Morrison, who's the chair of Cricket Wellington, um, was, a, was originally, at the beginning of the, 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 the whole project, she was the only female um, at the MA level, and there was um, Liz Dawson at the New Zealand Cricket level. Now, they've just voted in the fourth female on the New Zealand Cricket Board, so it's up to 44% at the national level. And um, all the EMA boards have now got at least one female, but like 60-odd percent have got two. Um, and Cricket Wellington, in fact, have three. So, you know, to me, that's remarkable. And that, I guess it gives a sense of, you know, the wake-up call of the report and a reflection saying, hey, we haven't got this right. We are not approaching this if we want to engage women in all aspects of our game. We have to, we have to do something different. And that's not just at national level. I think that's been around the country. And so you've really seen all the associations kind of going, oh, OK, well, there's, there's plenty that we need to do here. And they have actually taken action. So, yeah, I've been, I've been pretty astounded, to be honest, um, certainly in the governance space. Did, did you have a concern that they may have only been going to pay lip service to that report? Um, I was pretty clear up front when I was asked if I'd be interested in doing the work that I wasn't going to do a piece of work that was going to sit on the shelf. And I was assured right from the beginning by the board that that was absolutely, um, you know, this was being done for the purpose of making change. It wasn't being done just, you know, for nothing. So, um, and, and that's shone through all the way along. You know, there's, 
the changes, for example, the back in the back in the beginning, the, the website was blackcaps.co.nz. Now it's nzc.nz. All of those things, are, you know, there, there's just been a, a, an ongoing commitment, and even as board members have changed, and that, that constant commitment that yeah, this is about changing our game and actually going, we're, we're missing 50% of the market in all aspects of of people who you know could love and enjoy cricket. They don't have to play, but you know they can be engaged in our in our sport. What areas do you see that still need some work? Oh, there's plenty, plenty that still needs work. I mean, it is a journey, and yeah, it's been a fantastic start, but it is, it's an ongoing thing. I mean, you know, like anywhere, there are, there are the slow adopters. There are the areas where um, there's, you know, not, a, not necessarily the same recognition of, of the need for diversity or, or, you know, what that looks like or how you get there. Um, and, you know, while there's participation growth, there's still heaps to do. So in the um, youth space, so the teenage age, um, there's, there's a real need to look at how do we make the game interesting and fun for teenagers, female teenagers, because it, you know that's an area certainly that um, was pretty shocking in terms of their views of the sport. Um, and equally in the the adult space, and and I guess it's it's not just for the females' participation side, but cricket as a game is going through that transition and going actually we need to make this game you know a game for the future and it and you know it doesn't have to be the traditional long hardball version there are lots and lots of modified versions and actually from my understanding actually for all cricket there are more there are more people playing modified cricket that's shorter fun fitness social you know all that those aspects and that's about you know uh, cricket for the future That was the author of the Women and Cricket Report, Sarah Beeman, talking to Stephen Hewson. And that's extra time for this week. If you have any feedback on this week's show, feel free to email us, sport at radionz.co.nz. Otherwise, we'll catch you next week. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.